is Jared. I'm on staff here at the branch. Uh, kind of what I do is I do some of the odd and in admin stuff that nobody else really wants to do, but somebody has to do. Um, but one of the things that I do get to do that is very exciting is I am over our uh, leadership pipeline. Um, so what that is, is uh, it's our way of training and equipping you know, some of these young college kids, some of these people that are new to the faith, anybody uh, in, in what God has for, for ministry. And I kind of use that in quotation marks because we're all called to, to ministry. It might not be from the stage or from the, from the worship band, but it is in your job, it is in your vocation. Those are the things that God has called you to do and how you serve him. So our leadership pipeline is, does two things. One, it equips the next generation of church planners, however that may be. And two, it equips people to... Um, serve God in their ministry areas, right? So if you're interested in that, we've got a sign up on our website. Uh, you can also email me, ask me some questions about it. I'd be happy to um, help you out with that. But a few announcements before we get started. Um, summertime, this is your first summertime at the branch. Summertime in Dahlonega is awesome. Uh, things kind of slow down, family groups take a break, uh, and instead we get to play softball all summer long. So on Sunday evenings we play softball, uh, warm-up starts at 5.30, game at 6, tonight we'll be playing at field 5, it's that first field kind of on the way into the park, that is if it stops raining, we'll see. Um, Next thing is our next steps class. This is a, a, a class for new members, right? If you aren't a member at the branch yet, this is the first step in membership. Um, if you're, you know, curious about what the branch believes in, what we think, uh, some of our ideas, come to this class. Um, lunch will be, be provided, but only if you sign up. So if you don't sign up, you don't get lunch. Um, you can find that through our website or through the emails again. And then last thing is we have our next uh, branch School of Theology. This is going to be on June 25th from 5 to 7 p.m. Uh, it's going to be in the back room here at Parks and Rec, um, and that we will be discussing worship. We'll be talking about worship that night and kind of um, bringing in a panel of some of the, our people that lead worship. So, um, so go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus 33. We're going to be starting in verse 18, and briefly I kind of want to give a summary of where we are in Exodus because this passage kind of picks up in the middle of a bigger story. Uh, so Israel has left Egypt, they're in the desert, they've gone through to Mount Sinai, and they've kind of been at Mount Sinai for quite a long time, right? They're receiving the Ten Commandments, the instructions for the tabernacle, some of these things that God is giving them, um, and what's going on is that they are making a covenant with God. They're in a weird way that we can think about it is they are making marriage vows with God. So they are there at the mountain receiving these instructions, right? And Moses, the intercessor, the one that is kind of goes between God and the people, he is up on Mount Sinai. So he's up there for, for 40 days, and he's surrounded by God's presence in this cloud. And in these 40 days, he, he leaves Aaron in charge of the people. He gives them this responsibility of guiding the people while he's gone. And so while he's up there, the people start to get worried. They think he's gone. They think he's dead. They think, whatever, fill in the blank. Uh, and so they go to Aaron, who was left in charge, and they ask him, Aaron, what do we do? And he says, bring me your gold, and I will make you gods, right? Uh, and so he takes all the gold. He throws it in this mold, and out comes this golden calf. And Aaron attributes all the good deeds that God had done up to that point to this 
image, to this idol, right? So he said, this is your God that led you out of Egypt, that split the Red Sea, that delivered you. And so he replaces God, and he gives all of these good attributes and things that God rightly deserves to this thing that is created, right? And it's backwards. It's not the way that things were supposed to be. It's like uh, replacing a Ferrari with an old, beat-up Volkswagen Beetle, right? Um, and so, it, and it's kind of hard to really explain how badly Israel screwed up at this point. If you kind of read the story, it's like, it, it goes very quick. It's one chapter, and God is angry, and then suddenly he forgives them. And so it's easy to miss what's going on. But this story is like uh, the fall part two. This is like Genesis 3 all over again. God casts them out of his presence. Uh, he's no longer going with them to the promised land. Uh, but Moses, thankfully, he goes back up the mountain to intercede for the people. And this is where we are kind of this week. We're at the tail end of that story with Moses up on the, on the mountain speaking to God on behalf of all the people. And so, uh, and just to kind of point out some of the symbolism and the significance that's going on here, we have the righteous one person, the righteous Moses, who is up interceding for the sinful many, for the large crowd. And we see that, uh, you know, in a way, Moses is kind of turned down for this role. He tells God, um, forgive your people, strike me down instead. And, and what God says is, no, I will, I will um, deliver them. And so all of this shows the main point this morning is that God is compassionate and merciful, and he always responds to us with compassion. And it isn't because of a human exertion or, or because of what we want, but it is out of his character, out of who he is, that he would respond uh, and provide for us the true and better Moses, that he would give us his son Jesus, who would then be able to uh, bear the sin that we have. So I'll go ahead and pray for us this morning. Um, we'll read the text and kind of break it up into some chunks. So, Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your son and for your people this morning, and I pray that you will just be with us as we, we learn more about you and uh, seek to know who you are and kind of who you've told us you are. And I pray that we will listen and that we will allow this to sink into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, first chunk this morning, we're picking up Exodus 33, verses 18. So Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now this sounds kind of like a harsh conviction for God to have and kind of like he's picking favorites. And we got a piece of this at the end of the, the story of the plagues, right? He kind of gives the same uh, refrain talking about Pharaoh. He says, I will show mercy on who I will show mercy. And so the point that we have to remember is that the person that's giving this is God. Frankly, he can do what he wants. It is his right. Uh, and, and Paul says this in Romans 9 when he's kind of considering these same verses and these same stories. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? So we have no ability, we have no right to answer back to God because, frankly, he is God. There's nothing else to kind of, you can give an argument to that. And so this is kind of a heavy truth that, that I had to wrestle with at one point in my life and I felt kind of angry about it for a while. Like, what do you mean this, this guy that's a thief or a murderer, right? They can make it into heaven, but, but my atheist friend who is incredibly generous, who's kind, he doesn't make the cut. And the reality that we have to remember is that none of us really make the cut. 
Uh, all of us are guilty. So when God shows mercy to any of us, we, we know two things. One, it's truly not due to our efforts or our abilities. And two, it's a total mystery of why some might be chosen and why some are not. But we, we have to trust in God's um, in his knowledge, and that he knows what is good, and that his judgment is better than our own judgment. So let's pick it back up in verse 20. And so, but he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So in this chunk of verses, we have this plea from Moses. He wants to see God, and he wants to truly know God. And so it's kind of weird because we have to question, like, what actually is happening here? Wasn't Moses just in the tent with God? Wasn't God on the mountain before the golden calf story? And it's kind of confusing because it's like if you were already with God, why are you asking for more? Like, what's the point here? Didn't you already see him? And so if that's the case, uh, then what's been going on this whole time? Right? There's a difference between uh, what has been going on, what God has been showing, and what he is going to show Moses here. So the vision that Moses was seeing before were just small tastes. They were just little morsels of God's greatness, right? The burning bush just showed a small aspect of who God was, his holiness, his self-sustainability. Uh, when we see the fire and the cloud, those are other small aspects, how he provides for his people, how he protects them. And so when we have these tangible pictures of God's presence, we call these things theophanies, right? But what happens here in this story, this is the theophany, the theophany of all theophanies. It's so brilliant and it's so amazing that Moses can't even uh, see it. If he had seen God for truly his full picture, he would have been destroyed had God not protected him in this cave. And so it's, it's kind of like that scene at the end of the first Indiana Jones movie, right? So the Nazis, they take the Ark of the Covenant, and they open it up, and all their faces melt off. It's kind of like that. That's what me, it makes me think of. Kind of surprised nobody's referenced it yet. But the glory of God is too amazing for man to be able to behold, right? So in this moment, God is showing himself to Moses in the full capacity that Moses is able to withstand, and so this kind of request makes you think that Moses is being selfish, right? Like, what do you mean, Moses? You're, you're getting more of God than the rest of Israel. Why do you want more? Um, but we have to remember, one, that's a good thing to be selfish about, to want more of God. But two, that isn't the point of what Moses is doing here. Again, this is pointing to that role of the righteous intercessor, the one that is going in between God and the people. And the point of this isn't so that Moses can have this big spiritual gain on the rest of the people. Uh, think back to what his response was to the golden calf, right? He asked for the people to be preserved. He asked for God to destroy him in their place. And so Moses asking for the people to be saved kind of shows us what's going on. He understood what it meant to desire God, to seek him, and to do it in this non-selfish way that we just that I cannot comprehend. I just fathom at, at the love that he had for this people and this desire that he had. But as good as Moses' intentions were, they were not perfect. Moses could only see a shadow. He could only see a portion of God, and he could only uh, intercess to the people. He couldn't perfectly represent God who he was back to the people. And so we start to see kind of these small holes in this process. Moses wasn't able to enter, the greatest prophet that Israel ever had. How could we ever enter? If Moses was unable to lead the people to show God, how could I? 
or Andrew or Stephen or the rest of us when we go out to the world. And the good news is that we don't depend on ourselves. We don't have to be worried that our faces will melt off like the Nazis, right? But we know that we depend on the work of Jesus. So turn with me to John 1. We're going to kind of be flipping back and forth between John 1 and Exodus 33, so keep your place. And so in John 1, uh, verses 14, this is a description that we get of Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory has of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So it is Jesus that we depend on, it is his works that we have to depend on because he is the only one that truly knows God. He's the only one that has seen him. Um, And so when we pray for God to show us who he is and to kind of come to this deeper understanding that Moses is asking for, we know with certainty that he reveals himself to us, not because uh, we are worthy of it, but because his son was worthy of it, because his son came and did this for us. And so we know that... um, of all these things that we can truly know God because of his son. And so we kind of start to question, how does God respond to Moses here for his plea? And how would we expect him to respond? And so before we read kind of the rest of Exodus 34, I want to point out a couple of verses, right? Verses 6 and 7. And what we get out of this encounter between God and Moses is is one of the pinnacles, most important moments of Exodus. Uh, Some people might even argue that it is the most important part of the Old Testament. Not to say that the whole Bible isn't important, but there's some parts where it kind of whispers, right? When it's talking about the Nephilim in uh, Genesis 5 or the fallen angels in Jude, things that we don't really understand, and then we just get these brief mentions of them. But there are some moments where the Bible is yelling at us to listen, and what we have this morning is one of those moments. And it's so important for, for many reasons, but some of them is because it outlines the doctrine of God, right? That is what the whole Bible is about. If the subject is God, then this passage is important because it gives us such a clear picture. And it isn't from a human perspective that we have this, but it is from the mouth of God himself, right? So he comes to Moses and he says, this is who I am, Moses. And this is actually the first time that we get this description from God about himself, It's also one of the most quoted, if not the most quoted verse in the Bible, right? It's kind of like the John 3.16 of ancient Israel, right? The ancient biblical writers understood the notice of this. And if you read through the Old Testament, they kind of pop up everywhere, everywhere. In some way, it's either going to give it in the fullness or it's going to give it in parts. Uh, And so I've got like many examples. This is just a few that I found, Um, but it, it comes up in verses like Joel 2. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In places like Jonah 4, right, this is where uh, Jonah is kind of saying, I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I knew you would forgive the people. And he says, O Lord, this is not what I said, that I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Psalm 86, the psalm that we read this morning, it repeats it again and again and again. And I won't read all of these examples, uh, but if 
you're looking for something more, I would really encourage you to check these out later this afternoon. But if we understand the way uh, the Bible, the way that God wants us to understand it, and how uh, the biblical authors understood it, we have to see the significance of these verses. So I'll, I'll go ahead and read the rest of the chapter, and then we will, we will continue. Exodus 34 says, uh, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands the two tablets of stone and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take for us as your inheritance. And so I want to kind of spend some of the time breaking down some of these attributes, uh, but before I do, there's some key observations and key things that we have to understand about God, because this this is who he tells us he is. And so we have to kind of get rid of our own misconceptions to understand um, this is who he reveals himself to be. One, this is not just a proclamation of God's name, but this is a further revelation of his character, right? Moses, again, he got a piece of this at the burning bush when he said, I am, when he said, I am Yahweh. But here is a complete, full picture. Two, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit all share in these attributes all the time, right? It's not like uh, the Son is generous and compassionate, and the Father visits the iniquity, and the Spirit is abounding in steadfast love, but we see that all the attributes of the Trinity all share these things in fullness, right? And it's not like they each get a third of each. Um, They're not just a third compassionate, but they are all fully compassionate in the way that they do this. And three, God is always these things, always in fullness, and He never changes, The idea that God was an angry God in the Old Testament and, you know, a nice, gentle, loving God in the New Testament, this is is wrong, right? Because we see um, the exact opposite going on here. We see that he is already gracious and merciful. And it's not like he goes to sleep one day and decides to wake up the next day grumpy like we do and decides to visit the iniquity. No, he, he doesn't do this. He has always these attributes. And there exists in this a lot of tension But in this tension, in this description, we kind of have to um, accept that and kind of wrestle through that because to dismantle it and take, you know, God's iniquity or the way he judges and his compassion away from each other is to dismantle who God is. And that's not um, who he tells us he is. And that is a wrong understanding. Does that make sense? Good. I'm going to now separate the attributes even though I said don't do that. So first, we have uh, merciful, this first word that's given. 
And the word here used uh, typically can be used as compassionate, right? That's one of the ways that we see it translated, compassionate, loving. Uh, and the cool thing about it is that it is only ever used to talk about God, right? It's not used to talk about other people, but it is used exclusively to describe God and how he um, relates to his people. And so we have a sense of what this might mean, uh, but the response of this complete compassion exists only in God in a way that we just don't have the capacity for, right? Uh, the moms in the room might kind of understand what that means to be compassionate, right, to your children, uh, this unconditional acceptance, but even there it runs out. There is a limit um, to how much uh, your kids can mess up. I don't know what that is, but it's there. And so God's compassion is what keeps him from wiping out Israel in this story, in this scene for the golden calf. It's their sin uh, that would cause God to do that, but his compassion is what withholds it. It's what led him not to destroy the earth by flood again. It's this compassion that drives God uh, to care for the oppressed, to care for the broken, to care for those that um, are just needy for him and the weak. And Jonathan Edwards would put uh, his compassion in this way. He says, The sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over their heads, and it is nothing but the hand of mercy, the hand of compassion, and God's mere will that holds it back. It is this compassion that keeps us from death when we sin, when we respond to that coworker in anger, or when we look at that woman in lust. It is uh, when we devote ourselves to things other than God. It is His compassion that sustains us over and over and over again. And the next, next attribute that we have is that God is gracious. Uh, and the simple definition of the word grace is that uh, He gives us what we do not deserve or could ever earn for ourselves, right? By God reforming this covenant in Exodus 34, he's being gracious to Israel. They didn't understand or couldn't uh, deserve a second chance. They shouldn't have gotten a second chance. But God still says, I will uh, reaffirm this covenant. I will reform this covenant with you again. And there wasn't anything special about Israel that God chose to do this, right? He says, you are a stiff-necked people. Uh, They were not given this relationship with God because of something that they could give him or something that they could do, but it was entirely out of God's character and out of God who he is that did this. And just the grace of God that would compel him to give his only son for us, to redeem a bunch of sinners. And if we turn back to John 1.17, it says, If the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the beauty of this grace is that we never deserve it. The beauty of that is that it can never be stripped from us, right? Because if we didn't deserve it in the first place, then how could we ever lose it? How could we ever um, stop not deserving it? Does that make sense? Kind of a double negative. But uh, our actions can never be bad enough that it would change this core character of God to be able to take that from us. Uh, Our bad actions are suddenly not going to make God gracious. So in the middle of all these attributes, we have this next one. Uh, God is slow to anger. And this isn't so much a character or an attribute, but it's more of kind of a a response of what we have. Uh, One of the odd King James Version translations that we get from this is long-suffering. It's one word, one really long word. Uh, And it it gives this picture of that God suffers for a very long time before he enacts uh, good justice to it, right? And it's this patience that God has for his people. Even though Israel mumbled and grumbled and groaned all through the desert that he wouldn't destroy them, that even though they doubted the entire trip from Egypt, uh, he endured, mostly. There, there are moments where, 
where they had to enact justice on them. But notice that it does not say God is never angry, that he doesn't become angry. It says that he is slow to anger. And we will kind of get into why God's anger is a good thing uh, later, but, but we have to understand um, that, that God does not satisfy his anger from one little mess up, but he endures for the sake of his name. And if we flip back to Exodus 32, uh, in the middle of the golden calf story, he kind of, Moses quotes this and kind of gives this as his argument. Uh, he asked God not to destroy Israel, not because they didn't deserve it, but to uphold God's reputation to the nations. We see that, that they are saved from God's right anger because of his great name and his great strength that we have. The next attribute that we have, we'll kind of take them in pairs because they exist uh, together. Uh, God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Uh, and this is that covenantal love um, and faithfulness that God has, right? It says he gives it to thousands and thousands. If you know much about Hebrew, it's that word hesed. I probably said that wrong. Um, but it exists throughout the Bible, and it is this covenantal love, this agreement, right? And so when we talk about the word covenant, we kind of understand it in the words of like a contract or uh, a marriage. Again, we have that. And it's this uh, double-sided relationship, right? Party A protects party B, and party B devotes all their worship to party A, right? That is the deal of the covenant. That is the terms that they're given uh, when they accept this. They, they tell God, all the things you do and say, we will do. We will be obedient. The reality of this, though, is that Israel followed for about two seconds uh, before they went and made the golden calf, right? And so what they would expect from this is for God to recall these blessings. A lot of the pictures we get is when they make covenants is bloodshed, right? It shows the idea that if you break these covenants, we will shed your blood, right? And so that is what we should expect from this covenant, just from knowing the guidelines. But when we know uh, who God is and how he doesn't recall his blessings, how he doesn't get rid of this covenant, and it shatters our expectations of what we would understand of, you know, covenantal ideas. They were unfaithful, but God was faithful. Uh, the relationship that they had built with God was not built on mutual, mutual trust and faithfulness, but it was built on God continuously, always being faithful to his people forever and ever. And in the same way, we kind of have to remember that we are just like Israel, right? The story of the golden calf or the story of Pharaoh and the plagues and doubting God, that's the same story that we, we still reflect. Uh, God is still acting out of his covenant faithfulness and his covenant love for us. And so this, this last um, attribute and character that we have of God kind of creates this tension, right? Uh, he says, um, he is forgiving trans iniquity and transgression and sins, but who will no by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Right? When we use that word but, typically you're told, if you hear the word but, get rid of everything else in the front of the sentence. Right? That's not the case here. Um, God is gracious and merciful and compassionate, but he has to visit the iniquity of the people. And, and like I said, the anger uh, that God displays here is good. And that's because it's different from the anger that we feel, right? So typically I get angry um, when my expectations are met or when I have to clean the house even though I don't want to do the dishes this time, right? It's this, this, this selfish desire that I feel in order to seek justice, for something that I feel that I have been wronged on, but this is not the case, right? God's anger, it is true justice. He has to punish the guilty, and it is part of his nature to do this. 
If he didn't do this, then he would not be good. And I've kind of used this analogy before, and I'm going to use it again. Uh, but if, if me and my wife, we were on the square going to dinner, and this guy just came up and punched her, right? And I didn't punch him back. How much would I truly love my wife if I didn't do that? Not at all, right? Responding in anger in this situation where God loves his people, it is a good thing. And, and this brings a lot of comfort um, to the oppressed, to the broken, to the weak, the, the slaves of Egypt, right? They understood that God would be angry and that he would have to seek retribution for the sin of the people, right? And it brought them a lot of peace in knowing that God truly was compassionate like this. It's part of his nature. If he didn't do it, he would not be good. And this is kind of where we stand, right? This is where that tension comes in because we have to realize that we are the guilty. We're the ones that deserve the wrath for our own actions. We're the guy that punches Israel for, you know, for no reason. Like the Israelites, we have transgressed God, but he is willing and gives us compassion. It is through the death of his son Jesus uh, that we can stand again in this right relation. So when we have this, this long list of attributes, right, we kind of have column A, gracious and merciful. These will we'll just, for simple sake, this is the good category. All of it's good. And on this other side, we have visits the iniquity. So we stand here on this side in the iniquity of God always wanting to get back to that other side, but it is not through our own efforts that we give there. If you flip back over to John 1, uh, he says this in verse 12. He says, uh, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name in the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is Jesus who is full of grace and truth that is the same description that's used in Exodus 34. It's mirrored again here. He came to earth. He lived the perfect life, and he died the death that Moses couldn't even die so that we can become the children of God, so that we can step from God's iniquity back into his gracious mercifulness. And for those who don't believe Jesus, this is who he is. If you don't know who he is, that is what he came to do. He came to be compassionate, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And it is good that we remember these things, but we, have to, we can't detach the truth that God has to visit the iniquity. He must punish the guilty. What does all of this mean for us, though? If God is the perfect subject of our delight, uh, we can reflect in some way Moses' desperate plea that he gave here to see more of God, to seek after God. Right? We should all have felt that at some point that, you know, something's missing. I want more of something. And if you're not able to pin that, that is, that is God. That is the thing that you are seeking. And the sin that we tend to love, uh, that we tend to put in God's place that we choose, um, it's not compassionate. It's not gracious. It's not slow to anger. It doesn't abound in steadfast love. But the sin that we continually choose seeks to destroy us, right? It wants to devour us. It wants to destroy us. And so what we get out of this is that um, two things. One, that when God shows himself to Moses, it leads to immediate worship. That out of the response that he gets to God's revelation, it says he quickly bowed his head and worshiped, right? God is the ultimate uh, subject of our delight. And when Moses saw that, he responds in this way of absolute obedience and worship and devotion. And this is the right revelation for us to have. And two, the character of God 
all points to his desire for our repentance. Why would he be angry for just a long time for no reason? Why suffer for a long time for no reason? He doesn't do this because he allows for us to have a chance to seek his repentance. In, for instance, Joel 2 quotes these, uh, this, these words when it's calling Israel back to God, when he's telling them, seek repentance. It's because God always responds with compassion uh, to our sin when we, we seek him genuinely. We know that when we sin, God is always waiting for us. He's always there to forgive us, not because of what we did, but because of his son who stood in his place. He isn't there to shame us. He isn't there to be angry at us. He isn't there to turn us away because we messed up just a little bit too much this time. It's not the case. And growing up, you kind of get those lines from your parents, right? Tell me what you did wrong. I won't be promised. I'm angry. I, I won't get angry. I promise. Backwards. Um, but that isn't what God says here, right? Of course, your parents would get angry. It's human nature to get angry. But it is God's nature uh, to foreknow exactly how you're going to mess up, to know that, you know, someday you're going to betray him, that someday you're going to do these things wrong. And that's why he sent his son so that we, we could know him. And he doesn't seek to, to take that from his people. And, and I'm going to leave us with this quote uh, from J.I. Packer. Uh, he says, uh, There is tremendous relief in knowing his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can disillusion him about me. All of these good attributes and the things that God gives us is not based on our own actions, but it is based entirely out of the character of God. So as we kind of go into this time of communion, uh, this time that we have set aside to reflect on Jesus and who he is and how he came to die for us, um, that is what we're here to do, to remember what he did and to praise him for being compassionate and gracious. So, so I'll pray for us, and when you're ready, communion is open. Father, I thank you for all that you're, you are, that you are gracious and compassionate and merciful and slow to anger, that you love us so completely, Father. I even thank you that you've, you punish those, that you were, you were angry for the right reasons and that these things are good. I thank you that you saw it fit not to visit your anger on us, that you saw it good to forgive us, to send your Son for us so that we can come to know you, so that we can delight in you, so that we can um, come to know you better and better. And I pray that just as we spend this time reflecting on you, that we will, we will see that you are the better uh, subject of our worship, that we would choose you instead of sin because we know that you are so much better, that we know that you are so much more loving, that you are so much more accepting. And I pray that as we just go out this week, that you will continually remind us of that, that when we uh, might get distracted or forget who you are, become angry at something that you might have done, that we blame you for. I pray that we just remember uh, that isn't your word, that isn't who you are. And I thank you for your son and that all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.